0: The Apollo Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Road to Glory podcast presented by Apollo Media. I'm your host, Chris McGeehee. You can find me on Twitter at Chris B. McGeehee. Unfortunately, my co-host, Apollo Dez, could not be with us as we we recap the games that we saw this weekend. He will be back with us expeditiously, but in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what we saw this weekend with you guys. I want to briefly touch on a few games, and then after the break, discuss a few more in-depth, and then at the end, I'd like to talk about some of the overarching lessons that we learned during week one. Okay, so... Let's go in chronological order here for our brief check-ins. First, we're looking at number four Ohio State going to Minnesota to take on the Golden Gophers. We know that the Buckeyes came in as a 14 point favorite, and that's exactly how the game ended up with Ohio State winning 45 to 31. Now on Friday's weekend preview, Des and I speculated on what Buckeyes freshman quarterback, CJ Stroud may look like, and I think we got our answer. Stroud was impressively mediocre with his arm, going 13 for 22 for 294 yards and four touchdowns, but unfortunately adding an interception in there. Now, as far as first starts go, Stroud could have certainly been worse, and I expect him to continue improving from here on out. He did admit that in the first half, his mind wasn't right and that he was all over the place. I do think that we generally put too much on these young athletes, especially the ones who are expected to contribute immediately to some of these programs. Just keep in mind that Stroud is just 19 years old, starting for a top five team in the country. To be honest, I'm not concerned with his performance in the slightest. He's got plenty of time to improve and I expect him to do so. Now, Stroud did get plenty of help from the run game, which helped control things by racking up 200 yards on the ground, including a 71-yard cannon shot by running back Neon Williams. My bigger concern for this game, though, is the Buckeyes' defense, which gave up 400 yards of offense, Highlighted by Minnesota running back Mohammed Ibrahim, who had 30 carries for 163 yards and a couple of scores. Now, on a depressing note, Ibrahim did suffer a leg injury during the game, an unspecified leg injury, and he will miss the remainder of the season, according to the team. And honestly, after... The, the game, the performance that he had against Ohio State, that's certainly not the news that you wanted to hear because it looked like he was in line for another great season and it gets cut short. We don't like it, but injuries do happen in football, and unfortunately, this one got him in, in week one. Now, next week, Ohio State will host Oregon in a showdown between two schools that are still eyeing the college football playoffs. We'll discuss that matchup on the preview show on Friday, but I do think it will be interesting to see what adjustments the Buckeyes defense makes and how the coaching staff put Stroud in a position to succeed against what will be a ranked opponent, possibly top 10. Now, let's move on. On Saturday, we saw number one Alabama take on number 14 Miami in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. Last Friday on the pod, I talked about how under Nick Saban, the Crimson Tide have beaten every season opening opponent that they've had, and they've done it by an average of 27 points. That's 14 straight seasons of the exact same thing to start the season off. Des and I agreed on the pod that this game would likely go the same way, and it absolutely did. After jumping out to a 27-0 lead, the Tide cruised to a 44-13 win. I mean, if you're somebody who enjoys a great defensive performance, then the Tide have you covered. They forced three turnovers of Kane's quarterback, Derrick King, including two picks and a fumble. They did not allow a single point until the final snap of the first half when Miami kicked a field goal. But... Perhaps most impressively, at least to me, Alabama held the Canes to less than a three-yard per carry average as a team. Now, in this age of college offense and what we see on a near weekly basis from some of these teams, that statistic should be damn near impossible. But once again, Saban has his defense right and ready to kick off a season. On the offensive side of the ball, We know that the Tide lost a ton of talent to the draft this year. They lost Mac Jones, the quarterback. They lost Najee Harris, the running back. And, of course, Heisman winner, wide receiver Devontae Smith. And honestly, in what shouldn't come as a shock to anybody at this point, to this Crimson Tide team, that does not seem to matter at all. All Bama did was allow true freshman quarterback Bryce Young to step under center and just look like a championship caliber quarterback. He went 27 for 38 for 350 yards and four scores. Let me give you those numbers one more time in case you missed them. In his first ever college start, Bryce Young went 27 for 38 for 350 yards and four scores against a top 15 team in the nation. Now, junior wide receivers, Jameson Williams and John Mechie, the third, these two wide receivers combined to haul in only 10 passes, but it was for over 200 yards and a pair of scores. They were big plays just waiting to happen all day against what was supposed to be a good team. But, For Alabama, this is no big deal. It's just the reigning champs looking like they're ready to go back-to-back this season. But for them, it's a typical Saturday. Now, whether this was a case of Miami not living up to its preseason ranking or Alabama showing why it deserves to be ranked number one, we will find out in the coming weeks. But it was certainly a potential statement victory to start the season off for the Tide. For Miami, the positive is that their quarterback, King, looked about as well as he could have coming off of a long injury recovery and going against likely the best team in the nation. He did show uh, pretty solid accuracy, taking what the Tide defense gave him, using patience. His, His average on his attempts was not great, but, I mean, against a defense like that, You know, you can't exactly expect to, you know, be be averaging 10 yards per attempt. So, you know, he would check down. He was hitting short routes, doing whatever he could. But his mistakes came when he tried to fit a couple of throws into windows that honestly just weren't there. You can almost forgive him, though, because. These throws came when he was desperate to get Miami back into the game. I mean, they, you know, they, they were down 27 nothing, as we mentioned earlier, at one point. And, you know, in the third quarter, down by, you know, 30 points, he, he's just doing whatever he can to get his team back in it. So, honestly, if he can continue to play the way he did on Saturday – This is actually a Miami team that can hang with most teams in the nation. They're obviously just a clear cut below your Alabamas of the world. But I mean, you know, I, I don't exactly think less of Miami after what I watched on Saturday because I didn't expect anybody to be able to come out in week one and hang with Alabama. That's just not the way things work. Next week, both teams do get a cupcake as Alabama takes on Mercer and Miami will be taking on Appalachian State. So we will likely check back in on those teams for week three, provided nothing crazy happens next weekend. Now, at the same time that Alabama was handing a beatdown to Miami, the Steve Sarkeesian and Hudson Card era was kicking off in Austin where th- when the 21st-ranked Longhorns took on the 23rd-ranked Raging Cajuns. It was horns up as Texas won 38-18 to 18 behind a balanced offensive approach. Card, in his first collegiate start, and I'm seeing a theme here with young quarterbacks, which we will talk about later, completed two-thirds of his passes for 225, and a couple of scores. And he was complimented by running back Bijan Robinson, who carried the rock over and over to hit the century mark and a score for himself. Now, if you listen to the pod on Friday, you know that Des tried to tell me how excited he was for Robinson and how good he was. But to be honest, I did not quite buy in. I, I didn't really believe what he had to say. Now, after Saturday, I'm more of a believer. But personally, I want to see it a few more times, not just from Robinson, but from this whole team. For the last several seasons, the issue with Texas, I feel, has been their consistency. Now, And if they can get that ironed out, then they do have a positive outlook as a program. I just, how many times have we heard Texas is back or had to ask the question, is Texas back? Doing it week in and week out, that's what lets us know that Texas is back. Now, on the other side, I think that what the Cajuns did or or did not do, uh, I guess would be a better phrase, what they did not do that really did them in is they were just unable to get the running game established in the same way that the Horns did. The Cajuns average just 4.1 yards per carry when adjusting the quarterback out of the equation. If you factor in quarterback scrambles and sacks, that number drops to just 2.6 yards per carry. Now, my original plan when recording this pod was to ask Dez what his thoughts concerning the game were, but since he can't be here, I'll just let you know what he said on Saturday. He said, quote, That was the least sexiest win ever, and I have zero confidence, but I'm all in on Sark. And I got to tell you, that's exactly the response that I expected from a Texas fan because they just want to feel something at this point. Think about what they've had to go through over the last several years with their coaches. Having a coach that comes in, seems to establish an identity for this team, hitting the ground running, that's got to be – like crack to UT fans. Now, coming out of this weekend, Texas has several manageable matchups in a row in Arkansas, Rice, and Texas Tech, but then they're going to get TCU and Oklahoma in back-to-back weeks. That, of course, will be the test. I mean, that will be Texas' season. Get through those. And all of a sudden, we could be having a playoff conversation about UT, but we'll find out when we get there. Now, the last game that I want to get to for these quick hitters, Saturday night, let me set the scene for you. The number 16 LSU Tigers, they walked into the Rose Bowl to face an unranked UCLA squad that Dez thought They would absolutely destroy. He basically told us to bet the house on it. And I didn't think he was wrong. I definitely thought that LSU was the better team, but they were promptly embarrassed on Saturday night, losing 38 to 27. It's not that the Tigers lost, it's how they lost that should be concerning. They were thoroughly dominated up front on both sides of the ball. The LSU offensive line just could not get any movement all night as the Bayou Bengals racked up just 49 yards on 25 carries. Do you know how bad that is? Do you know how hard it is to get only 49 yards on 25 carries? I mean, you could lay down at the line of scrimmage and get the same number of yards. I mean, that's terrible no matter how you choose to look at it. Further compounding those issues is that a lack of a run game forced LSU to throw it more often than they probably would have liked. And Max Johnson, though, the quarterback for LSU, did acquit himself as well as he possibly could have, I believe, when you take into account the fact that defenders were essentially meeting him in the backfield at the snap of the ball. But there was that one play, and I don't know if you guys saw this, but Johnson takes the snap, feels pressure in the pocket, and then he turns his back to the defense. And as he's about to get sacked, he attempts to throw a backwards pass blindly just in the general direction of the line of scrimmage. Now, I never got a chance to play college football, so I try not to critique too much. But I think it's not a stretch to say that that's the kind of thing that would get you benched under a coach like Saban. And look, The offensive execution left a lot to be desired, but you have to give UCLA credit where it's due. They came out and were prepared and ready to go under Chip Kelly, which, if I'm being honest, was a bit surprising to me because Kelly's calling card has always been offense. Now, speaking of offense, the Bruins were ready to go on that side of the ball, too. The LSU defense came out, and they looked great for the first quarter, and then they just completely fell apart. They blew a simple coverage on UCLA's first touchdown of the evening, a 75-yard catch-and-run by junior tight end Greg Dulcich. And then after that, LSU got their run game in rhythm. or I'm sorry, UCLA got their run game in rhythm, and the game was essentially over at that point. Bruins running back Zach Charbonnet had over 115 yards on just 11 carries, and there was absolutely nothing the Tigers could do to stop him. Coming out of this game, I think UCLA is the story here. I mean, after week one, the Bruins are now 2-0 because, you know, math. And odds are they're going to be ranked going into their matchup with a Fresno State team that, that played Oregon really tough on Saturday. And according to ESPN's Football Power Index, UCLA is actually favored in each of their remaining matchups except their visits to Utah and USC. Now, if the Bruins continue to win and they do have five teams left on the schedule that are currently ranked after beating a ranked team this weekend, you could start hearing some playoff buzz for them. And that's part of what makes that middle to end of the schedule so exciting is because every game counts. Coming up, there's a few games that I want to take a slightly closer look at, and we'll do that right after this. Welcome back to the Road to Glory podcast presented by Apollo Media. All right, there's a few games that I wanted to talk about a little more in depth. Georgia Clemson, Penn State, Wisconsin, and Notre Dame, Florida State. So let's start with Penn State traveling to Camp Randall Stadium to take on Wisconsin. This was a relatively low scoring affair, and I saw people on Twitter complaining that this game was trash or awful. And I'll be truthful here. I quite enjoyed it. The first half was it was an old school defensive struggle. The Nittany Lions and Badgers combined for 12 possessions before halftime, and those 12 possessions included eight punts, one turnover on downs, one fumble and a blocked field goal, and then one possession to run out the second quarter clock. I know that sounds hella boring, but it was just such a beautiful, glorious mess of a first half, and I absolutely loved it. By comparison, though, the second half was an absolute barn burner, but it was really the last four possessions that had me hooked. So let's look at those, those last four, okay? So Penn State gets the ball back at their own 32 with 10-21 left in the game, tied at 10. After a short run on first down, Penn State quarterback Sean Clifford hits electric wide receiver Jahan Dotson for 42 yards to the Wisconsin 21. Four plays later, they put it in the end zone, but they missed the field goal. So now we're at 16-10 Penn State. Wisconsin gets the ball back, and they start their drive on their own 25 after a touchback. What proceeds to happen is Wisconsin goes on a 17-play drive, aided in part by a personal foul on Penn State on a key third down. Now, they're looking like they're a lot to score and probably take the lead with the extra point. They make it to the Penn State eight-yard line, where they're facing fourth and goal. Ball snapped, and Penn State picks it off at the two and returns it 41 yards to their own 43 with just 2.16 left, up by six. So, game's over, right? Nope. Penn State goes three and out, and I hate this. They only managed to take a minute five off the clock. So, Wisconsin gets the ball back one more time with a chance to win the game. And what do they do? They start driving again. I mean, how many times have we seen this over the years where – A team does not manage to run enough time off the clock, and so they have to give the ball back to the other team with a chance to tie or win the game. We see it over and over, which is why in those situations, I believe you should be more aggressive. It's my own personal opinion. I'm not a college football coach, but I got to tell you, going three and out, only taking a minute five off the clock just does not sound like a winning formula. And I know you're going to point to the results and say, Obviously, I'm wrong, but I mean, come on here. Wisconsin gets the ball back, 16-yard pass, 8-yard pass, 7-yard pass, and then it wasn't until the last play of the game. With the game on the line, Wisconsin quarterback Graham Mertz has his pass intercepted on the 8-yard line, and just like that, the game is over. But you're relying on an interception in that scenario. Wouldn't it be? So much easier to potentially, you know, throw the ball against a defense that is loading up to stop the run in in those last-minute situations. I mean, honestly, I shouldn't even be complaining because it was a thrilling end to a game that helped kick off the Saturday slate. And after going 4-5 and last season, this was an impressive win for a Penn State team that was able to go into hostile territory against a ranked opponent and walk away victorious. Now, Penn State has an easier matchup next weekend before taking on Auburn in week three. And similarly, Wisconsin hosts Eastern Michigan next weekend before welcoming in Notre Dame, who we'll be talking about shortly. So, moving on. Georgia Clemson. This was supposed to be the game of the opening weekend. Number three versus number five, Saturday night, prime time. You could not ask for anything better. That ended up not being the case unless you're the biggest fan of defense in the world. I mean, these teams combined for 12 punts in 19 possessions if you don't look at end of half drives. So let's start with the quarterbacks. For Georgia, you have junior JT Daniels and then For Clemson, you have sophomore E.J. Uangalele. And let me apologize real quick because on Friday, I screwed up on that pronunciation. That was my fault. I apologize. Will not happen again. Now, this was a disappointing start to the season for both of these quarterbacks because they each averaged less than five yards per attempt. I mean, we're talking 41, 42-year-old Drew Brees yards per attempt numbers. Not exactly something that screams pushing the ball down the field. Now, Uanga Lele had an especially bad evening taking seven sacks from that dog's defense that sent pressure from everywhere all night long. And, I mean, we talk about the dog's defense. Not only did they shut down the Clemson passing attack, similarly, the Tigers' rushing attack was just, Absolutely horrendous. Taking out the quarterback, the rest of Clemson combined for nine carries and twenty-four yards. I mean, the plan to run was abandoned pretty early on, but it it certainly didn't solve the problem presented by the Georgia defense, and it really didn't even get close. I mean, the the Georgia rushing attack was better. But this was still an offense that only managed a field goal all evening because they could not close it out when they needed to. And this game wasn't a turnover fest the way that you might expect with a score that low, and it wasn't played in horrible weather. You know, there was no hurricane moving through, no snow. I mean, in fact, Clemson only had one turnover all evening, but unfortunately it was the one that cost them. Uh, It was a slant route that was jumped. And the pass was picked at the Georgia 26 and taken 74 yards back to the house for the game's only touchdown. I mean, Uangalule, he saw his receiver, saw him hit the slant, thought that he had it there. And I mean, the, the route was just jumped. It's it's a mistake that can be made. Unfortunately, it is the one that cost him. So, I mean, we know that these two teams are loaded with talent. So was the shaky offense a byproduct of season-opening nerves? Were the defense is just that good? That'll be what's interesting to see for both of these teams as the season moves along. I mean, for Georgia, they should have a clear path to the playoffs because they get to avoid both Alabama and A&M in the SEC West, and they get to host Florida, currently the only ranked opponent left on Georgia's schedule and that's at the end of October. I mean in other words they should get plenty of time to optimize their play and their style before a potential SEC championship showdown with a team like Alabama or A&M with a trip to the playoffs on the line. On the other side of the field Clemson still appears to be the class of the ACC, and I'll believe that until I'm presented with evidence that proves otherwise. And while Clemson doesn't need to duck anyone because, you know, they're that good, there's no reason that they should have to duck anybody, they still have a favorable conference schedule that sees them miss Miami, North Carolina, and Virginia Tech. So I expect to see the Tigers back in the ACC championship, This year, unless things just fall apart. And if they're back in the ACC championship, you know, we could see another return trip to the playoffs, just depending on what happens in the rest of the country throughout the season. So now that we've talked about Georgia Clemson, we've talked about Penn State Wisconsin, I want to get to the game that was probably the game of the weekend. Your opinion might differ, but. Man, number nine, Notre Dame traveling to Tallahassee to take on Florida State. We had packed stadiums. I mean, the game had a little bit of everything. These offenses combined for almost 900 yards. We got an overtime game on a Sunday night on Labor Day weekend. And I mean, at the risk of being accused of burying the lead here, we have one of the best returns from injury in recent memory. And I know this has been done to death, but it's certainly not something that can just be overlooked. I had non-football fans sending me texts on Sunday night saying, man, that return is incredible. I can't believe he's doing this after the story that I just heard about him. So we'll get to that. But this game kicks off, and and it starts off with a couple of bangs. We see the Irish score on a 41-yard pass from quarterback Jack Cohn. Uh, I mean, he was fantastic on the evening. I mean, he was just ripping throw after throw. And then the Seminole score on basically a 90-yard run with about five minutes left in the quarter. And that's, I mean, that's really what got the fans into it. And when you get those fans in Tallahassee invested in this game and they're chanting and they're yelling, I mean, the, the atmosphere turned out to be absolutely incredible. But after that run, by the Knowles, the Irish really start to kind of take control, and they carried a 38 to 20 lead into the fourth quarter. Really looked like the game was over. I was getting ready to turn the game off. And I told my wife, I said, you know, I gotta, I gotta see one more drive by Florida State. They scored a touchdown, and all of a sudden, it's 38 28 after the two point conversion. And then. Florida State gets the ball back after forcing Notre Dame into a punt and they start to drive and Florida State's quarterback gets hit. Helmet to helmet, he goes down, he's hurt, backup's got to come in. And it's not so much that the backup had to come in, it was which backup was coming in. And... After Jordan Travis took that nasty hit to the helmet, there was about nine minutes left in the game, and former UCF quarterback Mackenzie Milton came in to replace him. I mean, big deal, right? Quarterbacks get replaced all the time, injuries happen all the time, except Milton is just not a normal injury substitution. I mean, this was Milton's first on field action since he was injured in the season finale against South Florida in 2018. And I mean, his injury was so severe on the fear on the field that it was feared that he might lose his leg. I mean, forget about playing ball again. If you're an NFL fan, think about Alex Smith and and the stories that you heard about him last season when he made his return. It I mean, the story was very similar to Milton's. I mean, they. He, he fractured his leg, his knee. I mean, it disrupted the blood flow and, and doctors really feared that he was going to lose his leg. So to see him on the field again, I mean, it really was a medical miracle. And he comes back on the field and you're like, oh man, this is a feel good story. Just happy to see him back out there. But then he comes out there and, and he looks like McKenzie Milton, like the McKenzie Milton that we saw at UCF. I mean, he he comes onto the field, he leads Florida State to a touchdown and a field goal in his two drives, but it was the way that he was doing it. The very first play, throws a dart, he's doing a little scrambling, a little running, he takes a hit, and, of course, it's the first hit that he takes since coming back out onto the field, since this injury. And so everybody's collectively holding their breath, and then he pops right back up, and you can tell – Oh, yeah. Milton's ready to go, man. He is ready to go. So in the fourth quarter, FSU outscores Notre Dame 18 to nothing. They force overtime. They have this storybook ending waiting to be written. And and then it all falls apart. They miss a field goal. After freezing their own kicker, there was uh, a fumble called on the field, and upon review, they they rule against it, say that it was uh, an incompletion instead. They move him back up, and the kicker for Florida State just misses the field goal, and then FSU can't do anything but watch as Notre Dame hits a 41-yard walk-off field goal of their own. I mean, it it was a wild ending to what was a great opening weekend of football. I mean, Notre Dame won a game that they were supposed to win, and they'll have a few weeks before taking on Wisconsin. But I'm looking at Florida State here, and, I mean, for Florida State, they might have lost but it really looks like this program may have finally found the game that you can point to as a turnaround. And I don't think they should be expected to win the ACC this season, but there's no reason that they can't continue to improve and build this program as the season moves along. And they could certainly play spoiler to a few teams on their schedule. They've got Clemson, they've got Florida who could be challenging for the SEC East and you know, a spot in the playoffs at the end. I, there's just, uh, there's so many possibilities for Florida State. And honestly, the sport is more fun when they're good. Okay, coming up, overarching lessons from week one. Welcome back to the Road to Glory podcast presented by Apollo Media. I am your host, Chris McGeehy. And we're 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 about to wrap this up here. We we've talked about uh, we've done some quick hitters on some games. We've gone a little deeper on some other games, and we're finally at the end here on this recap pod. And so I want to you know I want to take a look. And there's three things that that I think we learned in week one. And I try not to generalize too much. You know I I don't want to overreact and say that uh, you, you know. Miami's a fraud or, you know, Tulsa's the the best unranked team in the nation because they fought so hard against Oklahoma. So let's run through real quick the three things that I think we learned this week. And number one, being dominant on the defensive line might be what separates good teams from great teams this season. And we saw teams like Alabama and Georgia who showed their dominance through the the sack totals that they racked up on Saturday Uh, while, you know, teams like UCLA and Iowa, they showcased their D-line prowess by just absolutely throttling the opposing offense. I mean, just didn't let them have anything on the ground. So, I mean, I, I know that, you know, the, obviously the old saying is defense wins championships. Saban says that that's not the case anymore, but it certainly goes a long way. And if you have two teams that are fairly equally matched, that D-line might be the difference maker. All right, number two, for better or worse, young quarterbacks are going to go a long way to determining how this season plays out. We saw Alabama, Texas A&M, Ohio State, and Texas all roll out freshman quarterbacks and walk away victorious. I mean, those four teams, They absolutely believe that they're in the mix for the national title this season. But then on the other hand, we saw teams like LSU and Clemson send out sophomore quarterbacks with just disastrous results. In all likelihood, we'll see multiple teams in the playoffs this year with a young quarterback, possibly a freshman quarterback. And there's also a good chance that a young quarterback could be the reason that a team fails to reach the playoffs when maybe it otherwise would have. So i you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And in this case, that's your young quarterback. So number three, we shouldn't do preseason rankings or in-season rankings until at least week four. I mentioned this on the kickoff pod on Friday, and I've just never been a fan of it. Uh, you know, LSU had a horrible season last year. And then, yet they were ranked to start the season this year. And we saw how that went. We saw a total of eight top 25 teams lose this opening weekend. So, all I'm asking is can we please just wait until we have some data points on these teams before putting them in arbitrary rankings that can absolutely determine how the playoff voting at the end of the year goes? I mean, we have teams like, you know, Cincinnati or, UCF from a couple of years ago I mean you know if we wait you know say a month into the season before we release the the initial rankings you actually have a chance for teams who maybe otherwise wouldn't be considered who in the current system have to fight their way up the rankings you have teams that might be able to start off a little higher and you know therefore be able to work their way up just a little more maybe you do end up with some playoff spoilers you get a Cincinnati or UCF, you know, things like that. Maybe you get, you know, uh, Boise State back in the BCS era, things like that. I mean, all I'm asking is that we wait until we know more about these teams before we try to rank these teams. That's all. All right, guys, that's going to do it for the week one recap on the Road to Glory podcast presented by Apollo Media. We'll be back on Friday as we preview week two please be sure in the meantime to go follow the socials at Apollo Hugh at Apollo H O U follow at road to glory pod. And you can also follow myself at Chris B McGee. As always, we appreciate you guys for giving us a listen and we look forward to talking to you on Friday.